0: Hello, I'm Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Welcome to our podcast focused on executive leadership in the judiciary. Our first episode is about accomplished executives at the top of their game who failed spectacularly. It might seem odd to launch our podcast talking about failure, but studying failure, as our guest discovered, is an excellent way to learn how to be successful. Our host for today's episode is my colleague, Michael Siegel, Senior Education Specialist at the FJC. Michael, take it away.
1: Thanks, Laurie. I'm excited to introduce Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Why Smart Executives Fail and What You Can Learn from Their Mistakes. Sidney currently serves as the Stephen Roth Professor of Management at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth University in Hanover, New Hampshire. He's conducted executive training programs all over the world. Thanks so much for joining us, Sydney. Thank you, Michael. Tell us, what was your inspiration for writing the book, Why Smart Executives Fail, and What You Can Learn from Their Mistakes?
2: Well, you know, I had heard and read and many of us have so many books from CEOs um, about how great they were and successful they were or by consultants talking about a couple of their clients and giving us uh, yet another formula for success. And when you go and look at the companies everyone was writing about two or three or five years later, you discover they weren't doing so well. And so we were really missing something big. And, and I thought, you know, everyone knows people make mistakes. Companies, organizations struggle and, and, and stumble sometimes. Why isn't anyone analyzing that? Why isn't anyone writing about that? And that really was the major impetus for me to get uh, get into this
1: topic. It's an important addition to the research. And the research for the book began in 1997 and included 197 interviews with the executives and their associates in some 50 organizations, can you describe the range of organizations, maybe some of the names you encountered, and the kinds of executives you interviewed?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. So it was a really broad range of organizations um, from different uh, different countries, uh, different industries, um, companies like uh, Rite Aid in in uh, in pharmacy to uh, Sony um, um, from Japan to uh, uh to Wang Labs in the uh, in the US um and uh, and and many others and the the senior executives themselves were very very uh successful um that was one of the hallmarks of what I discovered they were really successful until they weren't and they ended up doing a bunch of things that uh, were were mistaken uh and um sometimes people say you know about senior executives they they, uh, they never saw it coming, or um, it was a random event, and, and they had to have to deal with it and it didn't work out so well. But what I, uh, what I realized from talking to these senior executives and doing the research we did is how how often was the case, pretty much always, that they were culpable. They had done something they shouldn't or they had not done something that they should have.
1: Amazing. And what other common characteristics of these executives did you discover?
2: Well, uh, tremendous self-confidence, and I'm not against self-confidence. I think you need to be self-confident to be successful at pretty much anything. But I think they they probably went a little too far in that direction. They were off the charts, big egos. Of course, they really believed they were the ones that had uh, uh, that knew more than everyone else. I talk about them as uh, people that felt like they had all the answers. That uh, uh, that felt like they had to be the center of uh, center of attention. That just refused to learn new things. They thought they had it worked out. they were they were not really focused on learning and uh, um, and all those things were, were really came out to uh, to bite them in a pretty bad way when uh, when they face challenging circumstances.
1: Yeah, boy, that comes through in your book. And when I read your book, I found myself shaking my head in disbelief about how smart executives failed to respond to changing conditions in the market. They believe that what worked for them in the past would continue to work for them in the present and the future. You offer examples, for instance, of executives from Barney's Clothing Store, Wang Laboratories, and Rubbermaid, to name just a few. Can you elaborate on one or more of these examples?
2: Oh, sure. Well, you know, take, uh, take Rubbermaid. I mean, what a, what a brand, what a product, what a company uh, making uh, literally hundreds of rubber-based toys and, uh, and products. And they were flying high. They were known as an innovative powerhouse. And throughout the uh, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s even, they were uh, they were doing great. In fact, in the early 90s, they were listed by Fortune magazine as America's most admired company. I mean, that's more <laughs> admired than you know, GE at that time, or IBM or Microsoft. And uh, what happened to them is that they thought that their model, their formula of being innovative and continuing to do that, what, had, what had always gotten them to the winner's circle, they thought that was the, the right answer without any limit. And what happened is uh, the world changed. In particular, as you get into the mid to late 90s, the rise of the big box retailers, Kmart, but obviously Walmart, Car- Carrefour in, uh, in Europe, uh and these are giant companies and you know Walmart would go to Rubbermaid and they said you know we love your innovation that's great keep it keep it up but your price is too high and you're not able to deliver in a way that is consistent with our warehousing and logistics system and you need to fix that and and Rubbermaid they 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 had just total turmoil because their formula again innovation what they were discovering is that that actually wasn't the pathway to success at, at uh, moving forward and because the world had changed. And they were unable to adapt, to adjust, and Rubbermaid uh, quickly plummeted in the fortune rankings and, in fact, ended up being acquired by another company. It's now a division of a um, of a conglomerate of all things.
1: Wow. Reminds me of Bill Gates' statement, what's the biggest threat to Microsoft? His answer was success.
0: <laughs> you One know, of the, there's, a, yeah. there's a lot to that, actually, Michael. Yes.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, one of the reasons executives fail, Sydney, in your book, is due to the wonderful concept you introduce of organizational rigidity. In your book, you state all organizations have an installed base of ideas that define the managerial mindset. And this installed base, I love that concept, is hard to overcome. You describe, for instance, how Motorola and other companies. Suffered from this malady, can you explain this concept and how it stymies leaders? Yes,
2: absolutely rigidity is is, uh, is, is when you think you uh, you have a system in place, a set of routines, and again it often leads to your or had uh, led to your success, certainly that was true at, Mo- at Motorola but you, uh, you you start to kind of believe uh, you believe your own um, press reports you start to believe that you've got it you 've got it right and uh, um, uh, the irony is, and, and this is a challenge for all organizations to be really, really successful, especially as you get bigger, you have to develop strong processes, things that that work um, um, almost almost automatically, and you have to be really well organized. Uh, but as you build those things into an organization and they become deeper and more entrenched, they start to become not just kind of kind of processes to help you smooth your way through. The, the company the organization that gets things done they start to become rigidities they start to become hard facts uh, and walls that you can't break through um, and and you know Motorola as a, as a good example being very um, very successful of course for a very long time but uh, um, they they pretty much lost the game to Nokia and Ericsson um, when when those two companies brought in their own their own cell phones and brought in digital and mobile uh, phones. That Motorola, while they, they were really strong in innovation and knew how to do, you had to make digital mobile phones, chose not to do so because of that, uh, that mindset that said, you know, 43 million analog customers can't be wrong. That's a real quote, by the way, from the yeah. person running the cell phone division at Motorola. And the, the, the irony about this also is that, you know, history repeats itself. Um, we're talking about Motorola, but just fast forward to Blackberry, Research and Motion. What happened to them? They were a the hot product for a long time, and they were unable to adapt to um, iPhone and Samsung to some extent. So you you kind of see a a pattern happening over time where you have this uh, this success, and you start to build systems and structures to support that, and it creates this rigidity, this thing that makes it difficult to change and adapt. It locks you into where you are already.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. And let me give you another organizational rigidity example from your book, which, again, I found really hard to believe. Apparently, the Boston Red Sox refused to appreciate the benefits of including African-American players on their team for many years. This rigidity, based on racial prejudice, led to the Sox rejecting players like Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays, the Say Hey Kid, and to the deterioration of the team's performance at that time. This really does seem hard to believe. How did this happen, and what can we learn from it?
2: Yeah, um, uh, there are a bunch of head-shaking examples uh, in the research and in the book, and and the one you're mentioning is a particularly unfortunate one because, of course, it was due to underlying racial uh, bias. Um, And it's not that the Boston Red Sox were the only team uh, or only sports team to experience that. Um, but they were one of the most, uh, well-known, certainly. And, uh, yeah, Willie Mays and not considered good enough. Jackie Robinson, not quite the right guy. Um, and, uh, um, you know, how, how, how did these, how did these things happen? So, of course, you know, race and, uh, and other bias and gender bias and other, other biases and cognitive biases, they, they play a part of how humans think. Some people think. Um, and not everybody, um, not everybody, can break out of some of the things that they learned a long time ago. And uh, maybe they know they know it's wrong. I hope they do, but they they just they they, they find it difficult to to uh, to, to do. Uh, you know, what also happens is you start to surround yourself with people that are reinforcing what those rigidities are. They're reinforcing what your biases are. And so there's no one around you that's going to kind of stand up and raise their hand and say, you know why are we doing this? Why why aren't we considering someone whose obvious talent I'm really uh The talent is so off the charts. Um, why are we so narrow-minded? And people are afraid to speak up. You know, we were talking about Motorola a moment ago. It's, an, it's a really good example. Where was the senior executive, where was the board member that raised their hand and said, you know, um, we need to think about this. No one did that. And it's a statement about human nature, I think.
1: Yeah, and it as has applications of the political world and in many organizations. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Professor Sidney Finkelstein about the importance of strategy and how it can lead to success or failure in executive leadership.
0: Have you visited the executive education page on fjc.dcn? The Executive Education page is a one-stop shop for all things related to executive leadership education. This is the place for chief judges and court executives to find the latest up-to-date leadership information from the Federal Judicial Center. On the Executive Education page, you can explore leadership competencies and behaviors, access current training programs and content, and learn about upcoming executive education programs. Now that we've piqued your interest, how do you get there? go to the Education tab on FJC.DCN and click or tap on Executive Education. See you there.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Siegel. I'm talking with Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Why Smart Executives Fail and What You Can Learn from Their Mistakes. Sidney, let's talk about executive strategy for a minute. Leadership gurus and scholars frequently discuss the importance of strategy, and yet you find that one of the causes of executive failure is what you call strategic misintent. What do you mean by this?
2: Yeah, well, good strategy goes a long way. I think there's no question about that, but... You can think you're right when you're really actually quite wrong, and that's what strategic misintent is uh, is, is really all about. It's this idea that says, you know, we we we've, we've analyzed the market, we understand what the what the customer needs, uh, and we're going for it. But in, but in fact, we've we fooled ourselves. We haven't fully understood just how um, uh, how the situation may have changed, or how we've uh, we've not understood what we're really what we're really great at. Um, there's a lot of different uh, forms that uh, there's a lot of different forms that it takes, uh, and um, um, the net result is that uh, you you start to follow down a down a path, and, and, and you realize you know sometimes way too late that you have a real struggle with that, and you know a really good really good example today are, are so many of the department stores and even the entire retail sector. Um, is it a secret that Amazon is out there? Not a, not at all. Everybody knows about that. <laughs> of course, everyone knows. But where where are where are the new strategic uh, um, um, analyses? Where are the new ways to think about your strategy that that puts you in a position to actually compete against a company that takes no prisoners, is unbelievably good in in, in the digital and online formats, and, um, and 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 is really riding a wave of a uh, you know millennial generation that. Um, uh, that is much more comfortable comfortable buying things online than just showing up in a store. And and if you, if you keep following the same old store strategy, retail strategy, which many department stores have done for a long time, they're gonna end up in big trouble and I think we're we're seeing that today.
1: Indeed. One of the surprising findings of your research is that vision can be detrimental to organizational success. This finding seems to contradict a good deal of conventional wisdom. In fact, we teach this at the Federal Judicial Center, suggesting the need for executives to have a strong vision. How can vision get in the way?
2: I don't. I don't want to leave the impression that vision or mission is a is a bad thing. The problem is that uh, you get uh, you get leaders that craft a vision that well. There's no other way to say it, but it, but it, but that it's wrong uh in the in the book i i talk about some companies or some executives some executives that crafted a vision where um, they um, and they were really good at fulfilling that vision except it was the wrong one you take a a company like sachi and sachi the giant advertising uh firm uh they they crafted a vision of being the biggest and the best in in their world and they they had no constraints around that and they ended up this goes back into the into the 80s in fact they ended up making a bunch of deals that weren't just in advertising, where they had real strength, but in in human resources, in consulting, in uh, uh, even they even tried to buy a, a big bank of all things. And so I, I use them as an example of brilliantly fulfilling the wrong vision. So it's not that vision is a bad idea, but let's be uh, let's be honest and let's be clear and let's kick the tires on uh, um, let's kick the tires on this. And, and, and the other thing I would say about vision that became really clear in looking at uh, companies like Motorola and a bunch of others uh, is that um, uh, sometimes vision could be too narrow. Uh, if, you, if your vision is to produce the world's best uh, mobile phone, let's just say, uh, you, based on based on your ability to marshal a great. Uh, quality and and, uh, and and continuous improvement in technology. You better be right with that vision because you're making a 100 percent bet that that's the right answer. And the world's pretty complex, so I, I, I like the idea of, of of a vision, but I like the idea that translates maybe if you take it one step lower into two or three fundamental goals. Because if you end up making um, again your your bet on only one possible uh, solution to the to to your world and your problem. You, you you're you're, bet, you're betting everything, and you better you better be right. And many of the companies and leaders I studied uh, actually were not right at all about that.
1: Well, so they became kind of obsessed with their own vision. Absolutely. I'd like to come back to the idea we previously discussed about executives failing to introduce change when conditions in their environment were almost begging for it. Using the Schwinn bicycle or Levi's jeans examples, can you elaborate on this? Yeah, absolutely. Schwinn uh, Schwinn is a great example because uh, everybody knows
2: Schwinn. Uh, growing up, um, most people had a Schwinn. But what, what happened? Uh, what happened to them? Well, what happened to them is that they uh, um, they, they they did not uh, adapt or adjust to really mega changes in their industry. In fact. Um, You look at the rise of mountain bikes. The beginning of mountain bikes as a uh, as a category. This became a. This was a tiny blip on on the screen. In fact, there was this guy named uh, Gary Fisher out in California that uh, he and his friends invented the mountain bike, if you will. And um, it, it turns out that senior Schwinn managers somehow discovered. Gary and they flew out to see him and they talked to him and, you know, Gary was this kind of, uh, counterculture hippie guy and the Schwinn managers in their suits and their ties took one look and said, this guy's nothing. And they turned back to Chicago, went home to head office and didn't do anything about that. And, uh, and, and so, you know, what, what kind of mindset, uh, what kind of mindset is that? Because Gary became a pretty big company and, uh, every, every one of Schwinn's competitors went into the mountain biking business at some, at some point and Schwinn were, uh, Schwinn was pretty much the last uh, company to do that. So, to, to me, if we can extract kind of, uh, um, not just the lesson, but what you can do about this, uh, uh, I've, uh, I've always thought that there are three key uh, elements required to change, and to change in any, any significant way, and, uh, and, and Schwinn illustrates a lack of um, uh, ability in all three, but especially the first. The first is you have to be willing. You have to be willing to change. The Boston Red Sox were not willing to adapt to, the, to a change in, in their talent pool, which is the rise of great African-American ballplayers. Schwinn wasn't willing to uh, adapt to the change of uh, the rise of mountain bikes. So you have to be willing. And Sometimes we, we think, well, that's, a, that's an obvious, that's a no-brainer, but it's not. Uh, a lot of people are actually quite unwilling to uh, change. And... Uh, um, um, and, and and so that's that's absolutely the first thing you have to do. But then you have to know what you're going to change into. You have to have a better answer, a new strategy, a new technology, new innovation, a better plan. In the case of Schwinn, again, they did have that. They had the mountain biking option. They chose not to do that. And then finally, uh, and, and anyone running any any part of any organization, any manager listening to us knows this one uh, very very well. You have to be able to execute on it. Whatever your plan is, whatever your goal is, whatever your strategy is, you've got to be really good at execution. So, you know, change is hard. You've got to be willing, you got to have a good idea, and you got to be able to execute on it. And Schwinn's a, a, an example. I, I was about to say a great example, but I suppose given the result, because they did go bankrupt, it's a terrible example uh, of failing at all three.
1: And I suspect, uh, going back to an earlier point, that having people around you to encourage your willingness to change could be very helpful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And,
2: you know, uh, every every one of us, every manager, every leader, you can just ask yourself, how often is it the case that somebody in your team is coming to you to kind of push back and challenge and, and disagree with you? And some people, of course, that happens every day, and they're getting worn out. And when people tell me that, I say, great, you're lucky. I think the real problem is when no one's really speaking up to you. And each of us can kind of make that assessment for ourselves, that no one is disagreeing with you, uh, don't have the right team, uh, or you haven't created a culture in the team that enables them and gives them them some safety, psychological safety, if you will, to speak up and not, not fear the repercussions of doing so.
1: So important. Toward the end of your book, you discuss the seven habits of spectacularly unsuccessful people. I had a chuckle when I thought about Stephen Covey's popular book, the seven habits of highly successful people. I'd like to discuss three of these habits. One, they think they have all the answers. Two, they ruthlessly eliminate anyone who isn't 100% behind them, which we just talked about. And three, they underestimate the major obstacles to success. Would you choose any of these to elaborate on for a minute?
2: Yeah, they uh, um, they are rather remarkable. How often I saw exactly the same the same things that you're describing, uh, these seven habits, if you will. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, let's talk about the the obstacles one. The fact that they underestimate um, obstacles and the and the importance of those obstacles, and as a result, think they can plow through everything. Uh, if you uh, there's an interesting insight here about leadership in general. Things that are really good for you, things that are that help you become successful. Uh, if you continue to do them and you don't adapt and change, uh, and grow, uh, then they can actually, they can actually hurt you. It's almost like the, the ancient Greek tragedies. You know, they, uh, what was the theme? Those things that get you to the top, if left unchanged, will also lead to your eventual downfall. Well, this point about obstacles is exactly that because no one, no one's gonna be successful if if uh, as soon as you run into into some interference, as soon as you run into some difficulty, we turn back and we don't have the resilience, we don't have the the perseverance to kind, of, to kind of figure things out. We have to have that. We have to have that ability. And I bet we couldn't find a successful person that hasn't figured out a way to get through barriers in the past. Uh, but uh, uh, at some point, you you know, it's the, the, the data are overwhelming, and you and you need to start to listen. and and recognize, you know what, perseverance and resilience are not the right answer now. Adaptation, agility, and change is the right answer.
1: At the end of your book, you say the smart executives profiled in this book did not intend for disaster to strike, but it did because they weren't aware of the insidious and sometimes complex ways in which failure emerges in organizations. The executives you described were decent, mostly highly successful, as you mentioned, and intelligent people who certainly did not intend to fail. How could court executives learn from their mistakes?
2: Well, there's a lot, of things, uh, there are a lot of things that are possible. I think uh, no, number one, uh, let's get serious about practicing some humility. Um, I, I, I said earlier I love and believe self-confidence is important, but so is humility. In fact, it's another good example of how combining the opposite kind of a paradox is really critical. You got to believe in yourself. But you also be humble. Yeah, also need to be humble enough to listen to what other people have to say and, and and process that information. I think that's a big thing. I think second, be on the alert for data for information, especially coming from users of your products and services, customers and 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 others. Um, don't uh, don't hide behind a desk or a cubicle and think you're going to figure out what's going on. You have to be out in the field talking to real people. That are using your products and services, that are benefiting from it, and, and ideally finding out what the, what could go wrong or what the, what the problems are and how you might be able to how you might be able to fix it. And then uh, and then I think third, you know, when we surround ourselves with world class talent and we help them get better, and we um, we create an environment where they they continue to learn. We create this kind of learning culture that people talk about. Uh, I think that's a uh, as powerful. Of a uh, of a vaccine, if you will, you can have against some of these some of these underlying causes for failure. I think all of those things will make a big difference for people.
1: Thanks so much. I know the judiciary can learn a lot from this, and we at the FJC try to help them fulfill that third strategy of learning. And you have really helped us learn today. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Sydney. Oh, thank you, Michael. I really enjoy
0: it. Thanks, Michael. To hear more episodes of In Session, visit the executive education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to In Session on your mobile device. Produced by Jennifer Richter and directed by Craig Bowden. I'm Lori Murphy. Thanks for listening. Until next time.